Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 18, Paul writes, And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. In the book of Ephesians, Paul speaks of the believer's standing in grace in chapter 1, verse 3, all the way through chapter 2, and then chapter 3, verse 21. The believers walk in service in chapter 4, verses 1 to the end of the chapter, 5 to 17. Now it begins a brand new section in the book of Ephesians. We will from here on in focus not only of the walk of the believer, but both the walk and the warfare of the believer, beginning in verse 18, all the way through chapter 6, verse 20. The walk of the believer, you'll remember, is a reference to how we conduct ourselves in the world in which we live. Our walk is what we say and what we do among each other and in the world in which we live. Remember, we were told to walk in love in verses 1 through 6. We're to walk in the light in verses 7 through 14 of chapter 5. Walk carefully, verses 15 through 17. Now, we're going to be encouraged to walk in harmony with the Spirit of God and with the people of God, with husbands and wives and children, and we're to be filled with the Holy Spirit in verse 18, controlled by joy in verse 19, characterized by graciousness, generosity, and thanksgiving in verse 20, committed to humility and selflessness and submission in verse 21. When I first became a Christian, someone asked me whether or not I was a tongue-talking, spirit-filled Christian. I had no idea what that meant. I had zero idea of what it meant to be a spirit-filled believer. Over the years, I've come to understand that what people mean by that phrase and what the Bible says about being a spirit-filled believer might be a little bit different. Years ago, in an interview, Ruth Graham was asked about growing old. She said that growing old was no more difficult than growing up. And I thought about what she said. Growing old, which I am doing, is no more difficult than growing up which I'm still struggling to do. And I thought, what an interesting reply. Because sometimes growing up is hard, isn't it? Sometimes growing up is difficult, filled with challenges and setbacks and obstacles and difficulties. Sometimes growing up includes ignorance and foolishness. But sometimes... In the process of growing up, we struggle and we ask God to help us to learn and to grow and to mature, to embrace the things that make for health and to abandon the things that aren't so healthy. In the book of Ephesians, Paul is going to point out the difference between being spiritually dead and spiritually alive in order to be fully alive in the spirit. Remember, we walk in the light rather than darkness. We walk in the truth rather than lies. We walk wisely rather than foolishly. We're to live our lives as if the Bible instructions are known, not unknown, the spiritual walk of the believer in chapter 5 is going to lead to the spiritual warfare in chapter 6. 
I hope and pray that you didn't have a childhood like I had a childhood. When you're a child, sometimes you're pushed around and you're bullied and you're intimidated. And you say, I, I can't wait to grow up so that people won't take advantage of me anymore. We begin to understand something. The walk and the warfare of the Christian, it's going to require way more than just knowledge and information. It's going to take way more than just good intentions. It's going to take a disciplined willingness to submit to the Lord. It's going to require power and zeal. And the truth is it requires supernatural power. You can't be a Christian apart from Christ and the Holy Spirit. You can't walk as a Christian apart from the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And in order to be filled with the Spirit, guess what? You have to be found in the Word of God and occupying the Spirit of God. You need to be filled with the Holy Spirit in verse 19. Controlled by joy, verse 19. Marked by gratitude. Actually, filled with the Holy Spirit's verse 18. Controlled by joy is verse 19. Marked by gratitude is verse 20. Committed to submission in the fear of the Lord in verse 21. When I was preparing this message too, I thought about that men are sometimes afraid to tell us the truth. Sometimes we'll talk to each other. On more than one occasion, people have come up to me and say, Pastor, is it okay for me to drink? Is it okay for me to go to a party? Is it okay for me to do this and to do that or to em embrace this or reject that? And I wish I could tell you that I'm never afraid to tell you the truth. Because sometimes I am afraid. I'm afraid that if I tell you the truth, you'll get up and you'll walk out and you'll never come back. I want that to not happen. But I can tell you this. I can tell you this. The Holy Spirit is never afraid to tell you the truth. The Holy Spirit will tell you the truth and he won't spare your feelings. The Holy Spirit will tell you the truth knowing everything that you've done or that you plan to do or that you want to do. The Holy Spirit won't lie to you. The Holy Spirit will always give you wise instruction on how you're to go forward. So look what it says in verse 18. We're complete in the spirit. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the spirit. Paul begins with a duty. The contrast is between two different kinds of control. When he says to the Ephesians, don't be drunk with wine, it's a command. Don't get drunk, which is dissipation, but be filled with the spirit. This is also a command. Apparently, this is something that you can do. This is something that you can agree to. This is something that you can participate in. And so again, since the, the contrast is between two kinds of control, being controlled by alcohol or being controlled by the Spirit of God, the New Living Translation says, don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead, let the Holy Spirit fill you and control you. So what does Paul mean? It may mean that what people seek from wine can be found in the Holy Spirit. I want you to think about this just for a moment a little bit differently. I'm certainly going to talk about the theology of the passage in just a moment, but I want you to think just for a moment like a person who's in trouble and needs help and needs the supernatural presence of God and the presence of the Holy Spirit in their life. Why do people drink and drug? 
I know that some of you have, and I know that some of you have grown up in homes where you were surrounded by people who got drunk and who drugged. And if you were to ask them the question, hey, just, just, for, just for a moment, tell me why you're drinking. Well, I like it. I like the taste of beer, or I like the taste of wine, or I, I like the company, or I want to escape the pain, or I want to relax, or I want to, I want to bear with the unbearable. It, it's interesting to me that the Bible doesn't condemn the drinking of alcoholic beverages. It condemns being controlled by alcohol. It, it condemns being manipulated by alcohol. As a matter of fact, in Proverbs 23, verses 19 through 21, we read, Hear, my son, and be wise, and guide your heart in the way. Do not mix with wine bibbers. This is an Old Testament, Old King James uh, wine bibber is a person who frequently taps the keg, who pops the cork, who drinks and drinks and drinks. I had an Irish friend who says, you know, the Irish are very famous for drinking. He goes, I know the Italians are, well, Italian people scare me. I go, why do the Italian people scare They'll fight you when they're not even drunk. <laughs> the wine bibber is the person who collects a an entourage of people who will drink with them or with gluttonous eaters of meat or the, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty and drowsiness will clothe a man with rags. The idea is for the person who's committed to drinking or drugging in this case is almost certainly committed to ruining their life, ruining their marriage. Ruining their relationships. The word translated dissipation is not a word that we often use in our culture and our society. It translates a Greek word, asotia. Now, I'm not giving you the Greek word to show off Greek. A is what's called the alpha privative, which negates it. Sotia is a beautiful word. It's the word that has as its roots, sozo, where we get the word salvation. Salvation, remember, means rescue, redemption. It, it means being purchased back. It means being rescued from a life. So asotia means the exact opposite of save. It, it, it can mean not save, or it can mean debauched, or ruined, or abandoned. It even came to describe a word that we would say not worth saving or ruined. In the ancient world, this was the word that was used to describe someone who was incurably sick. It's the same word that's used to describe the prodigal son. Dissipation is a form of self-destruction. And so it's talking about something that we do that inherently will eventually destroy us. So Paul makes clear that getting drunk or being controlled by alcohol has no place in the Christian's life. But it's interesting to me. In the ancient world, it was customary to drink and to get drunk. Now remember who he's talking to. He's writing to the Ephesians, and you may or may not know this, but in Ephesus there was a beautiful temple to Diana. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. This was a place where they would build literally temples filled with beauty to the gods and goddesses. And one of the temples in Ephesus was dedicated to Dionysius. And Dionysius was called by the Romans Bacchus, but Dionysius was the god of wine and revelry and party and, and drunkenness, if you will. And so they created a religious system where you actually worship the god Dionysus by 
drinking and altering your state of consciousness and inviting drunken visions. And so the cult of Dionysus believed that you could achieve a sort of a higher consciousness through inebriation. They combined wild singing and dancing and drinking. And you're going, this sounds like any club in Denver. (laughs) They would combine frenzied music Self-mutilation, and by self-mutilation, tattoos and piercings. With the eating of raw flesh, they would offer sacrifices, and then they would eat the raw flesh. Don't think sushi, think carpaccio. Do you know what carpaccio is? It's very thinly shredded beef. And so, again, what do the ancient drunk and the modern drunk have in common? Both want to feel good. Both want the pain to go away. Both hold out drink as some sort of solution to make the pain go away and to create a pleasurable sensation. Drunks want to feel good. Drunks want to cast off inhibitions. Drunks don't want to feel bad anymore. And it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Doesn't it make perfect sense that lonely people don't want to be lonely and hurt people don't want to be hurt and empty people don't want to be empty and that people who are always afraid want courage? There's an estimated 88,000 people in the United States of America, some 62,000 men and 26,000 women who die every year from alcohol-related deaths. If we were to take the time, I'm sure people could stand up right now, right in this very building. You could stand up and say, have you ever known anyone who drunk themselves to death? They died. It, It killed them. But what you may not understand is that if 88,000 people are dying from alcohol-related deaths, that means that alcohol is one of the leading causes of preventable death in the United States. In 2014, alcohol-impaired driving fatalities accounted for 9,967 deaths. That means 31% of overall driving fatalities. That means that almost three out of every 10 people who die in an automobile-related accident, they die because someone was drunk. In 2012, 3.3 million deaths, or 5.9% of all global deaths. That means everyone who died in the entire world died because they died because they got drunk or something related to alcohol. 7.6% for men, 4% for women. Would it surprise you that there are more than 40 million drunks in America? Would it surprise you that 8 million are between the age of 12 and 17 and they drink every day? Before you drink, you should ask yourself several questions. Is this necessary? In some parts of the world, it might be the safest thing you can drink. I've been in parts of the world where you couldn't drink the water under any circumstance. But is it your best choice? Is it habit-forming? Is it potentially destructive? Is it going to offend other Christians? You might have the freedom in Christ to drink, but remember, your freedom stops when it harms other people. You should ask yourself the question, is this this harming my testimony? Is it giving other people permission when they probably shouldn't have permission? The verb to be filled is very interesting in this text because it's in the present imperative. It means to be filled and then keep on filling. We could even read it, be continually filled. Filled with the Spirit. Apparently, this is not some event that was experienced in the 
past, never to be experienced in the, uh, in, in the present or in the future. D.L. Moody described this event that we're like leaky ships that were constantly leaking out the spirit and we're in constant need to be refilled with the spirit. Jesus said, I will pray the Father and he'll give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever in John 14, 16. And when I was thinking about this, when I was thinking about this passage and I was praying and preparing, I, I, I asked myself this question. I said, people ask me all kinds of questions. Over 16 years on the radio, I got asked lots and lots of questions. You know what is the one question no one ever asked me, ever? Pastor, how do I go about getting drunk? No, you laugh. No one's ever called me and asked me, hey, how do you get drunk? Now, without admitting anything, how many of you know the answer to that question? Look at all the hands go up. You know how to get drunk. It's fairly easy. Whether you have beer or tequila shots or whatever it is that's your poison of choice, it's fairly easy to know that if you slam down a certain amount of liquor, there is a tolerance level that, and a threshold in which you will reach. Many people have asked me, how do I get filled with the Spirit? Or what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Or how do I know I'm filled with the Spirit? Remember that being filled with the Spirit is Paul's answer, the Bible's alternative to self-destructive behavior. And some people confuse the baptism in the Holy Spirit with being filled with the Spirit. The term baptism of the Holy Spirit isn't found in the Bible. The Bible speaks of a baptism with the Spirit and by the Spirit, in the Holy Spirit. The phrase Baptism with, in, or by the Spirit occurs seven times in the Greek New Testament. Matthew 3.11, Mark 1.8, Luke 3.16, John 1.33, Acts 1.5, Acts 11.16, 1 Corinthians 12.13. The first time people were baptized with the Holy Spirit was at Pentecost. At Pentecost, You'll remember that the Holy Spirit appeared in an upper room with tongues of fire and came upon the people and gave them this supernatural ability to give witness to the story of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. John the Baptist predicted that Jesus would baptize people with the Holy Spirit. In Mark 3.11, he said, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who's coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. A few years later, Paul Peter speaks of the baptism with the Holy Spirit as a past event that already happened to him. In Acts eleven fifteen, 15, and it says, and as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit, Acts eleven fifteen and 16. Paul taught that the baptism of the Spirit places believers into the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, whether slave or free. We've all been made to drink from the one spirit. It was the Holy Spirit. If you were ever convicted of sin, it was the Holy Spirit who did it. If you ever, ever, even for a moment, imagined yourself as a person in need of, of a Savior, it was the Holy Spirit who said so. If you've ever met Jesus as your Lord and Savior, it was because the Holy Spirit brought you to a place where you were willing to admit your sin and your need for a Savior, and then the Holy Spirit introduces you to Jesus, and he saves you. And he redeems you. And he places you into the body of Christ. Paul wrote the same thing concerning the churches of Galatia. He says, 
in Galatians 3.27, for as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Christians receive the spirit, the moment of salvation. How do we experience salvation? By faith. How are we filled with the spirit? We are filled with the spirit by faith and obedience and submission to God in Christ. This is a non-experiential event. What do I mean by that? I mean that no emotion or feeling is necessarily connected with the receiving of the Holy Spirit, yet all Christians are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, we, are, we receive the Holy Spirit when we're saved, and we are filled with the Holy Spirit as an ongoing condition of Submission. When revival broke out in Samaria, there was a group of people who received the gospel in the Lord. It says, now when the apostles in Acts 14, 17, when the apostles who were in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them who when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. It says in in Acts 9.17, with the conversion of Paul, remember, Paul has his eyes opened. Ananias lays his hand on him. He receives the Holy Spirit. Paul repeats that in Acts chapter 19. So the Christians in Ephesus, just for a moment, pause. The Christians in Ephesus that Paul is writing to and he's written to in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 4 and now in chapter 5, they have heard the gospel. Some of them have been saved. Some of them remained unsaved. The Christians in, in Ephesus were baptized in the Holy Spirit and spoke with other tongues already. So why would Paul ask them to be filled with the Spirit and to continue being filled? The idea seems to be that there is this constant, constant conscious continue, continuation, that there is a sense, and this is how we participate, because you can't be baptized in the Holy Spirit just by simply going, Hey, I want to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit shows up and fills you with power. So what does it mean in obedience and submission to Paul when he says, you keep on, keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. How do you obey what Paul is asking you to do? We're going to do a thought experiment. Imagine I have a cup on this pulpit. And the cup is empty. It's filled with air. How do you get the air out of the cup? Anyone? Some of you said fill it with water. You understand. I've had engineers go, you could create a vacuum. And then what you could do is suck all of the air out by creating a vacuum. You could do that. That would be one way to get the air out. But the simplest way to get the air out is to fill that cup with water. How do you get you out of you? How do you get the flesh? How do you get the wickedness? How do you get the selfishness? How do you get the constant thinking of yourself and speaking about yourself and living for yourself out of your life? You're going to have to think new thoughts. You're going to have to say new words. You're going to have to live a different kind of a life. Being filled with the, with the Spirit means yielding to the Spirit. It means obeying the Spirit. To be filled with the Spirit isn't begging the Spirit of God to fill you or waiting on the Spirit. Some misguided Christians suggest that it's the presence of the Spirit which is made known by the evidence of speaking in tongues. And don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. It's okay for people who experience the baptism in the Holy Spirit who create awakening of, 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 a, of spirit gifts that are inside of the person, but to be filled with the spirit isn't begging for the spirit or fasting for the spirit or waiting on the spirit. 
The evidence of the presence of the spirit in the life of the believer is something way harder to fake than just pretending to speak in a language that you've never known. The evidence of the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life is because of the presence of joy in verse 19. Paul is painfully aware that the presence of the flesh and the presence of the Spirit are at war with one another. He talks about it in Galatians 5, 16 through 26, where he discusses the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Religion, religion, religion can never, ever produce the fruit of the spirit inside of the believer's heart. In Galatians chapter 5, fruit is always the product of something that is life-giving. My mother was a child who grew up, for the most part, in the 50s. She was born late in 1939, and, and her childhood was in the 1940s during World War II. And in 1950s, for some reason, there was this fascination with plastic fruit. You could go to Sears, and you could buy a bowl of plastic fruit in the 50s and the 60s. You could get this fruit that look, looks like a banana. It looks like an apple. It looks like a peach. And you would load this bowl with fake fruit. And you go, why? Well, it looks nice. But can you eat it? No. Does it have any nutritional value? No. Religion can produce fake fruit. But fruit is always the product of a life-giving relationship. Christian character comes from the inside by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is at work changing us. Now, again, if you are a Christian, the presence of the Spirit came in the moment you received Christ as your Lord and your Savior. If you've ever been baptized with the Holy Spirit, the baptism in the Holy Spirit might have occurred sometime in the past, but the filling of the Spirit is an ongoing process because D.L. Moody was right when he said that sometimes we begin to leak. We could spend hours talking about the fruit of the Spirit as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control from Galatians chapter 5 verse 22. It's fairly easy to pretend to speak in a language that you've never learned, but it's downright difficult to fake the fruit of the Spirit in the life of the believer. Many people filled with the Spirit do speak in tongues, but no one can claim being Spirit-filled if you're not controlled by the Holy Spirit. If God, God's Holy Spirit isn't controlling your thinking, or controlling your heart, or controlling your speaking, or controlling your living. If you are unwilling to obey this single command in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19, if you say, look, or 18, and do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. If you're not willing to be filled with the Holy Spirit, you won't be able to obey anything else in the Bible effectively, ever. Remember, Paul has already said, stop lying, start telling the truth. Stop stealing, start working. Live differently. I want to live differently. You won't. Unless you're willing to yield to the Holy Spirit. How do I, how do I yield to the Holy Spirit? Remember I gave you the illustration of the cup filling with water? You can't drink from an empty cup. You can't love from an empty heart. You can't produce the life-giving fruit of the Spirit unless the Spirit is really at work in your life, changing, changing your thought process, changing your speaking process. The Holy Spirit will invite your eyes to look away from the things that you have no business looking at and will invite you to look at the things that you do have business looking at. And so, again, if you're not willing to obey this single command, then you're going to have problems with your thought life 
with your speech, with your living. Being filled with the Spirit gives the disciples of Jesus the power to witness and declare the the gospel. It's the power and the presence of the Spirit in our lives that gives us the ability to live our life in our home, among our children, at work, and even at church. Being filled means the Holy Spirit. Listen carefully. Being filled means you give the Holy Spirit permission. To control you, to control your thoughts, to control your reading, to control your watching, to control your life. And for the, the person who goes, I don't want anything, anyone to control me. Then you're going to have the worst time ever walking the Christian walk. It sounds a lot like possession. It actually is. It's being possessed by the Holy Spirit. Maybe you've never reached a point of personal crisis where you needed to personally and permanently surrender to the Holy Spirit and say, Lord, my mouth is out of control. My thoughts are out of control. My heart and my circumstances are out of control. So what does this mean to surrender to the Spirit? It means refusing to relinquish control to the flesh. Paul says that the evidence of being filled with the Spirit is a life that's marked by love and joy. And so he's going to talk about that controlled by joy in verse 19. Because verse 18 and 19 are connected speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody in your heart to the lord we have to concede that this verse has something to do with the verse that we just read if we're controlled by the holy spirit we are going to be controlled by joy Jesus puts a song in our heart. Let's put it a little differently. The spirit-filled person will be marked by joy. The spirit-filled person will find God's song in the saint's heart. The Holy Spirit, listen carefully, the Holy Spirit sings songs inside of our heart and sometimes as the Holy Spirit is singing in our heart it makes its way up our throat and onto our lips and then out of our mouth just like when you you least expect you might be reading the Bible you might be praying you might be doing whatever it is that you're doing and all of a sudden the Lord puts a song inside of you and and you want to sing it desperately The first word is psalms, which means, oddly enough, not what you might think it means. You might read this word psalms and you think, oh, this is a reference to all of those passages in the Bible that we call the book of psalms. And I'm going to suggest to you that there's that element, and certainly that's true. But the word literally means a strumming of the fingers, it was used that way in, by the ancient Greeks, Euripides and others, or a striking on musical strings, Ascalapus and others. And it came to mean a sacred song sung to the accompaniment of musical instruments. Now, what's interesting about this is there are some religious groups that suggest that you can't use musical instruments in sacred assemblies or or that somehow it was forbidden in the early church and nothing could be further from the truth. There's a reason why David is called the sweet psalmist of Israel. There's a reason why he played an instrument and he plucked the strings on the harp. And so I'm going to suggest to you that the word was used clearly to describe a portion of the scriptures that you and I collectively call the collection of Psalms in our Bible, but it could mean the singing of sacred scripture accompanied by music. And so when a person is playing an instrument and Carolyn or others are strumming the guitar, and they're singing these sacred songs. It's coming, if you will, from a heart that's filled with joy. The word translated hymns, hymnos in the ancient Greek, 
came to mean a festal song in praise of gods or heroes. In the Septuagint, it was a word that was translated in the Old Testament as a song of praise to God. It's found only here. And in Colossians 3.16, where it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, same word, spiritual songs, also in this passage, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So, so the word hymns is a word that describes some sort of sacred music to God. Spiritual songs translates the Greek word ode. We get the word ode from it. Ode. It means a song. The song can be sorrowful or sad or full of joy. When the word is used in the Old Testament Septuagint, the Greek translation, it's always in reference to a song of praise to God or Christ. It's found three times in the book of Revelation, chapter 5, verse 9, chapter 14, verse 3, chapter 15, verse 3. Of course, Colossians 3, 16, which we've already read. Paul uses the adjective pneumatikos, ode, spiritual song. And so when he uses the term spiritual song, it's a reference to the nature and the character of the song being sung. Bible teachers argue whether Paul is differentiating between Christian forms of worship or poetry. But again, Paul uses three words when he could have used one word, but all three words describe this rich expression by the Holy Spirit in the human heart, whether it's a voice that speaks to God in, its, in a singular voice or instruments or the lack of instruments, whether we're singing the scripture or songs that we've made up. The word singing, like I said, is the word ode. It comes from the root word, a do. A do is the person doing the singing. O de is the song. <laughs> o do is the person who sings. And so to, it, 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 to, the word meant to celebrate something or someone in a song. We've been doing it since the beginning of time. People will sing songs. My uncle used to tell me that the day I was born, he sang to me. He said the number one hit in America in March of 56 was Born on a tabletop in Tennessee Killed him a bar when he was barely three Davy, Davy Crockett, king of the wild frontier So my, so my uncle would sing Gino, baby Gino, king of the hospital row Kissed him a nurse when he was three days old. It never happened. He just made it up. But when you're making up songs, you can do whatever you want. But here's the point. The word came to mean singing, and then he's using the term, the, 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 the two words translated making melody. You see where it says singing and making melody. This is one Greek word, salontes, the salo. Again, to strike the strings or the harp or the lyre. It meant to strike up a tune. It's, it's, it's an idiomatic expression in the ancient world where they would sing. You've probably heard people sing, say this. Sing us a song. That, that's probably what it means. It meant to sing a song. It, it could be translated singing and psalming. And Paul adds, in your heart to the Lord, meaning the hearing of the psalm should be accompanied by emotion in the heart. We might think of this as the songs that we sing on the outside should be felt on the inside or reveal the circumstances of our heart. This is what we mean when we say, sing it from your heart. That's what he's meaning. So what's the difference between a hymn and any other song? In the hymn, the singer is addressing 
God. Augustine suggested there are three essentials in order to make a hymn a hymn. Number one, it has to be sung. A hymn really isn't a hymn if you're just doing it in your mind. If in your mind you're, you're thinking, you know, I'm saying it out loud, but just imagine you're thinking it. Joy to the world. In order for it to actually be a hymn, you have to actually say it with your lips, mean it from your heart, address it to God. So Augustine said there are three essentials. Number one, it has to be sung. Number two, it must be praised. And number three, it must be praised to God. If it's not sung, and if it's not sung to God, then it's not a hymn. And so, in short, psalms are sacred songs accompanied by instruments. Hymns are sacred songs with or without instruments with a complex composition that may or may not be accompanied by instruments and spiritual songs means to celebrate someone or to celebrate something in a song and guess what as a christian you're given permission to do all of these things praise and worship serves as an antidote to discouragement and doubt and depression and it's interesting to me remember <laughs> when your drunk friends used to get together and watch cheers you want to go where everybody knows your name do you remember in junior high school singing 99 bottles of beer on the wall 99 bottles of beer you chug one down and pass it around. It's interesting to me that in the ancient times, when people were getting ready to die, sometimes they would sing silly songs, like roll out the barrel and we'll have a barrel of fun. Can you imagine getting ready to die and singing inane and stupid songs? But most people understand the gravity of what's happening and they want to sing stuff like near my God to thee or they want to sing amazing grace. John MacArthur writes and I agree with him, quote, our music can't be like the music of the world because our God is not like their gods. Most of the world's music reflect the world's ways, the world's standards, the world's attitudes, the world's gods, unquote. You see, the great danger of Christian music is that the world hears our music and then they hear the music and they say, well, you know what? Your music is no different from our music. And don't get me wrong, many, many artists talk about a crossover song. There are Christian artists that has a wide worldly listening. I'm, I'm not opposed to Christians who produce art that's sung by the rest of the world. But what I'm wondering is how few of them take the cross when they cross over. You see, it's one thing to sing a song. But it's another thing to sing a song in this world about a message about Jesus about a savior who loves you, a sinner, a sinner who has a, is redeemed by the power of the blood of Jesus. It's not the style of the music or the beat of the music or the instruments used in worship. It's the message. It's the message. This, it's the message that makes our music different from other people's music. Guess what? We live in a world where the world has a message about emptiness and hurt and anger and pain. I can't tell you how many worldly songs I've listened to where people are crying because their loved one has died and they don't have an answer to the anguish that's inside of their heart. We talk about singing the blues when marriages split up and people die and, and they're trying to come to grips with what happened to them. It's the message that makes the difference. It's when you show up and you sing a different song, a song of love and a song of hope. 
And so the spirit-filled person is marked by joy and by thanksgiving. Look what it says in verse 20, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Again, we have to acknowledge that these verses are connected. Verse 18, the command, be filled with the spirit. Verse 19, sing songs in your heart. Verse 20, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of Jesus. That means under the authority and the express interest and consistent with the nature and the character of Jesus that that song expresses our gratitude to God. The happy heart, the joyful heart. This is what Paul is saying. The spirit-filled heart is a joyful heart and a happy heart and a grateful heart. And so you can't be a spirit-filled Christian absent joy, absent thanksgiving. The spirit-filled Christian is marked by joy, thanksgiving in our mouths that leads to expressions of gratitude. Maybe one of the best things I could ask you about this one simple verse is this. What is your attitude about Thanksgiving? Who is the least thankful person that you know? And heaven forbid that the answer is you. If I ask you the question, who's the least thankful person you know? And you go, oh God, that's me. I am the least thankful person that I know. It's been my experience that the least thankful people are those who believe that they deserve everything that they have. People who are marked by thanklessness are fond of saying that they earned everything that they have and they deserve everything that they have. And so it doesn't make sense to them to be thankful the ungrateful finds hypocrisy a place of comfort. This poem reminded me of my granny. Thank God for dirty dishes. They have a tale to tell. While others may go hungry, we've eaten very well. With home and health and happiness, I shouldn't want to fuss. By these stark of evidence, God's been very good to us. Can you imagine looking at a pile of dishes and smiling and saying, Thank you, God. Listen to this. Thanks to God for my Redeemer. Thanks for all thou dost provide. Thanks for times now but a memory. Thanks for Jesus by my side. Thanks for pleasant, balmy springtime. Thanks for dark and dreary fall. Thanks for tears by now forgotten. Thanks for peace within my soul. Thanks for prayers that thou hast answered. Thanks for what thou dost deny. That means when you say no. Thanks for storms that I have weathered. Thanks for all thou dost supply. Thanks for pain and thanks for pleasure. Thanks for comfort in despair. Thanks for grace that none measure. Thanks for love beyond compare. Thanks for roses by the wayside. Thanks for thorns their stems contain. Thanks for home and thanks for fireside. Thanks for hope that sweet refrain. Thanks for joy and thanks for sorrow. Thanks for heavenly peace with thee. Thanks for hope in the tomorrow. Thanks for all eternity. And this becomes maybe one of the keys of the description of the spirit-filled believer. They're controlled by the spirit. Their hearts are filled with joy. Their mouths filled with gratitude. Look what it says, submitting to one another in the fear of God. The word submitting is in the present middle participle, hippo, tasso. It's a military term, which means to place an order of rank or to be subject. So it could read subjecting yourself voluntarily. It's as if you're getting in a line and you go, the general goes here and the private goes there. And you always put yourself at the end of the line. You just simply place others above yourself. 
in humility, in the fear of God. Now we begin to understand what we're reading. The spirit-filled believer. Their hearts are filled with joy. Their mouths are filled with praise. And the way they live their life is in humility in the way in which they conduct themselves among family and friends. They can't be self-serving and selfish and subject at the same time. Paul's going to talk about this a little bit more in the chapter in verse 24, in verse 30, in verse 33. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that when we come later on in the text. So how can we call ourselves spirit-filled believers? Unless our lives are marked by love. In other words, imagine you call yourself a spirit-filled believer but joy is conspicuously absent because you never sing. And gratitude is rarely a part of your language. And subjection and submission is absolutely not a part of your life. You see, Paul... When he makes this command, he invites you to participate in obedience. Joy can be a part of your life. Singing and praising God can be a part of your life. Giving thanksgiving can be a part of your life. Subjection and submission can be a part of your life. The moment that you say, I want to think differently. I want to speak differently. And the moment that you make that decision, guess what? I guarantee you, you'll start to feel differently. I'm going to close with a story that I read this week about a missionary in the city of London who was ministering to the poorest of the poor in the 1880s during the time of Charles Spurgeon. He found a woman who was dying from the last stages of a terrible disease. The room was cold. There was no place to lie down except the floor. And when the missionary asked if she could do anything to help the woman, the woman just simply replied, I have all that I need. I have Jesus Christ. Deeply moved, the missionary went home and she wrote this song. In the heart of London City, mid the dwellings of the poor, These bright and golden words were uttered. I have Christ, what want I more? Spoken by a lonely woman, dying on a garret floor, having not one earthly comfort. I have Christ, what want I more? That's a spirit-filled believer. That's a spirit-filled believer whose life is marked by peace and joy and contentment and humility. You could do it. You can purpose in your heart to obey this command. Go ahead and say it. I want to be filled with the Spirit I want my life to reflect the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life. I want to think the thoughts that the Holy Spirit gives me. I want to speak the words that the Holy Spirit provides for me. I want the presence of the emotion in my heart to be governed by the Holy Spirit. And I want my attitudes and actions to be governed and determined by the Spirit. And guess what? You can keep on. Keeping on being filled with the Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these words of comfort and confidence. Lord, we know that Paul has given us instructions. Some of us will obey. Some of us won't. 
our lives won't be marked (laughs) by the presence of the Spirit, evidenced by love, evidenced by joy, evidenced by thanksgiving, evidenced by humility. These things can be faked for a moment, but not forever. Lord, we know that in order to be truly obedient to the Spirit, we have to be willing to cooperate. And so, Lord, I pray for these men and women. I pray that you would fill their hearts with the knowledge that you want to lead them, you want to guide them, that the supernatural presence of the Holy Spirit is available to everyone who wants to think differently and speak differently and act differently. Lord, give us a desire to fill our mind with the things of the Spirit and fill our words with the things of the Spirit and fill our living with the things of the Spirit so that we can with confidence when asked, are you a Spirit-filled believer? We can say by the grace of God and the presence of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Word of God in my life, I so want to be a Spirit-filled believer. I have Jesus. I have everything I need. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.